Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, folks. Lovely to have you back with us. Uh, or a very warm welcome if you're joining us for the first time. This is indeed the Crash Moto GP podcast, episode 21, and a look back at all the action that treated us across the classes in Misano. It was elation for Peko Bagnaia, who looked at ease from the start but came under heavy pressure in the last 10 laps but managed to hold on to claim his second win of the season back-to-back wins for the italian who takes five points away from the championship leader fabio corsararo who was the rider applying the pressure but ultimately had to make do with second and who saw this coming Finishing on the podium, a magnificent ride to his first ever MotoGP podium in an old spec bike. Anea Bastianini followed up his great result from Aragon with third place in Masano. We'll, of course, be discussing all of that and more, including a look back at how uh, Andrea Davizioso and Franco Morbidelli got on on their returns to the championship. Uh, the big 2020 news that emerged over the weekend, plus Moto2, Moto3 and a few big debates and rants i think that'll be coming at you over the course of the next hour plus all of your questions answered so we've got a lot to pack in guys uh, let's start with our our podium finishes our top three and our winner i think we have to start there banyaya incredible start uh, was investigated perhaps for a jump start as well the stewards said no was it just uh, a perfect start for banyaya who was then able to really draw out an amazing lead in the early start of the race well, I think you've just hit it fairly hard there, Harry, to be honest with you. I mean, was it a jump start? To most people, yes, it was. Um, the fact was that maybe, and I can only conclude that they're, from all the camera angles that they've got, and they've got more than we saw or more than we see generally, and it's another one of my rants, why don't we see all of the angles when they have this kind of con- this kind of contentious issue? What we should have after the race immediately is all of the the viewpoints that they've got and the reasons and how they came to the conclusion they came to. Because we've seen riders penalised for much less. Cal Crutchlow, Argent- is it Argentina? I seem to remember something like that. Cal Crutchlow, Argentina, where we moved a millimetre. The point is, and this is in the real rule book, I tell you what, since that race finished, I've spent three hours reading the rule book for, for several <laughs> things that we're going to rant about on it, or I'm going to rant about anyway. Yeah. The, the first rant is, is this particular rule. If you have stopped and have not been deemed to have taken much advantage but you've stopped when the lights physically go out you're okay now the bit that annoys me is how much we're talking about 
millimeter precision now by going onto green paint as measured by monitors everywhere you go. You can lose a race, you can lose a place by running a millimeter onto the green stuff, just touching it with a bit of bit of rubber, and that could cost you a place uh, or the race. And now we're talking about the fact you can move a bit, but providing you've stopped when the lights go out, you don't get a penalty. The fact that you are maybe, what, one millimetre, two millimetres, two inches, three inches, that's all down to the discretion of the stewards again, which I disagree with straight away. If we're going to be that harsh over green paint, let's be a bit harsh on the start as well. Now, the fact was that Bang Nye got a perfect start, it would seem to me. Reaction time comes into it as well. Now, I can't quite imagine... Freddie Spencer sitting there with his stopwatch and the bloody videotape going, seeing if it was a, a jump start by the fact that there's a designated time that you can react from what you can see to when you can start moving a limb. Um, that is a set in in time. Drag racers all know about it, obviously, when it comes down the staging lights and he gets to the point where he goes green. If you get the perfect start, it's not perfect. You've anticipated. And that's the issue here. Bagnaya, probably a little bit nervous on the on the start. Maybe he got a little lucky this time. Maybe he had stopped. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He had stopped by the time the lights went out. That's the only reason he didn't get a penalty. But the fact is, is it fair that he was an inch or two further forward by the time he did dump dump the clutch? The lead he had into turn one, I think, would suggest he did have an advantage at the start. Who measures that time, that reaction time? How do they measure that reaction time? These are questions I want to see more about. and, And I think that, since we've gone on this rant before, I've gone on this rant before about precision. You know, we're in a we're in a sport now that measures to the third decimal point, and you can have three riders that do exactly the same lap time to three decimal places. They're probably going to introduce four. When back in my day, you only went to a tenth of a second. Now you're going to a thousandth of a second. I can see times coming where we're going to go to four decimal points. If we are in a sport of precision, there isn't any leeway in this situation. You either jump the start, you don't jump the start. You know, it's a situation where Bang Nye got away with this by. MotoGP's slightly loose start procedure rules. I've read them. I've read the entire, and I even locked on to, logged on to Mike Webb, who I think it was 20, I mean, it was only a couple of years ago. Mike Webb did an interview about this very subject and goes through it, you know, on camera and says exactly the same thing. And the rules are still the same. If you move, but you only move a small amount, but you've stopped by the time the lights go out, whether you hit the brakes or whatever it is. But if you're rolling like Crutchlow was, Crutchlow was rolling at the minutest of tiniest, tiniest amount. But when the lights went out, he was still fractionally moving. So he got a penalty. It's a two, it's a two long lap um, penalty, by the way, if you, if you, if you are deemed to have, whereas it used to be a ride through penalty, you had to come down pit lane and effectively your race was over. Now it's a much more reasonable penalty. If you consider two long lap um, loops being a reasonable penalty, but that's what Bang Nye, I was waiting for it to come up on the screen. I really was waiting for it to come up. I thought, I'm sure my eyesight isn't that bad. I'm sure he jumped or got an anticipated start. It was a perfect start, um, it would seem. And that's how the stewards have seen it, as a perfect start rather than one that should be penalised. So he got away with it. <laughs> he got away with it. Pete, was there anything that was said, you know, post-race? Has he commented on it at all? Is that the, I imagine the other riders, you know, who the guys right behind him surely would have been you know, up in arms about that at the end of the race. If they, you know, any any chance to, to get a go on their competitor, they're going to be up in arms, surely. Yeah, to be honest, the other riders didn't didn't mention it. Banyaya just said he made the best start ever. So you know, <laughs> Almost he, too, he claimed yeah. he he claims, as, as Keith says, that he went when the lights were out. 
Now, as as Keith says, the point is that you can you can still do that, but you can anticipate it because you, you can actually be so so soon after the lights have gone out that it's not humanly possible to react, which means you must have actually you know reacted before the lights went out, but the bike doesn't move until afterwards. But anyway, as Keith says, he's he's got away with it, and yeah, he, he certainly uh, that first lap. I mean, what was he? One second clear of the field, so it was a dream first lap, and it. Well, he needed all that time at the end of the race, didn't he? So, yeah, I think uh, he was certainly glad he got that start. It was all about the start, that race, really, at the end of the day as well. I mean, when you've got Mir back on 20th place, Mir was having a great week. You know, he really looked like he was going to be podium material this week. And 20th place he had to come from. It was a disaster for him. Disaster for Suzuki again with Rins on the floor. But it's a bit all about the start at uh, Mizano. That first two or three corners can make or break your race. And Bang Naya, bang on it. Really, really did a great job. Great race, though. I mean, I've got to say, Quattararo, I thought he was going to do what um, Mark Marquez did to him a few years ago. Not that long ago now. It's probably only two years, isn't it? But uh, Marquez, when he stalked him for the whole race and then zapped past him right at the end of it all, um, he just couldn't quite. He just had that massive great bobble going through Cavone at one point. Not the kind of corners to go sliding around in, I can tell you that for nothing. It was interesting, though, from from Courtois' perspective, because, you know, it did look like Bagnaia kind of had it wrapped up, perhaps in, you know, the early to mid part of the stage. Then the tyre wear and the issues played its part. I think I was watching it the last 10 laps thinking, oh, no, this is Bagnaia's lost it now. Surely Courtois going to get through. He didn't. Courtois, on his way, though, had some good scraps with uh, Jorge Martin, Jack Miller as well, before he started to close in on Bagnaia. But I found it interesting, actually, he said post-race that, you know, he's only lost five points in the championship. And he said that was one of the, his best races of the season. He was very happy with the second place. Probably he was in fear of what the weather was going to do. You know, it was one of them situations where I think everybody had, had that little sprinkle down on the line just before it all started off. Everybody was saying, oh, and of course that was the worst case scenario for Quattararo. If it had been one of them half and half wet races, um, that would have really blown a lot of points. So I think maybe that part Ferme conversation was more about relief than anything. 20 points is a lot better than where he could have been if, if things had turned out quite badly as far as the weather's concerned, because you could have been fairly sure that Jack Miller and co, there were a lot of pretty fair wet weather riders, which Quattararo, if he's got a chink in his armour at the moment, that is it, isn't it? That kind of wet weather stuff. It's just, he hasn't quite got that maturity on a MotoGP bike. The fact of the matter is, very rarely do they ride in the wet. And if you go back, I mean, you can go back decades in my case, you know, I remember Randy Mamola. Randy Mamola could not ride to save his life in the wet in the old days. They put water bowsers out on a track to try and get him up to speed on it, and he just could. But then, slowly but surely, his maturity and his obvious skill, which Randy is a superstar on a motorbike, he got up to speed in the wet. And sure enough, he was one of the best wet weather riders you've ever come across when uh, when he got a little later on in his career. I think it chucks up a dynamic that that some people just do not get on with, that, that insecurity of knowing quite how that track is going to react when you get to it how those white lines are going to dry out. You know, reading a race and following the evolution of a track, whether it's getting wetter or whether it's getting drier, is a real, real skill that that some riders don't have. You know, let's go four wheels for a second, shall we, Harry? Um, NASCAR, you know, you, you, I've said it before, you got, you know, as the sun comes round on a NASCAR oval, you know, got the most basic racing vehicles in the world that they have to adjust Every time they come in, they adjust them to suit that changing condition. And a rider has to do that himself. You know, a, a bike racer has to do that for himself. He has to work out 
where he can go in a little bit later with a little bit more trail breaking, where he can tap the throttle on a little bit more and hope the back's going to stick, or worse still, he's not going to take the weight off the front and it's going to wash out. And, you know, and it comes down again to tyres. If you're on, you know, wet tyres, they've got huge, you know, lovely feel to them. You, you've got you've got that millisecond of warning of what's going on. When you've got a slick tyre that's decreasing in temperature, you've got grip and then you haven't. And it's literally as quick as that. And while we're thinking of that, going back to last weekend, um, tyre issues um, that were going on. Interesting that um, Cotteraro, Pete, um, turned around and said that they they basically got the wrong tyre pressures, which if you go back to Alex Briggs, if you like, then Alex Briggs, you know, one of the top men at uh, Valentino's side for many, many years until he moved to Patronus. Alex Briggs is now in retirement back in, uh, well, retirement, working on his farm back in Australia. But he was commenting on on how the tyres react. If you're in traffic and you've got no cooling around you, the air around you, and it pops up just a few well, we'll say PSI, but they work on bar more than anything, but I'm an old-fashioned sod, so we'll stick to PSI, shall we? Um, if they come up just a few PSI, you get like a ballooning effect. So at the end of the day, your contact patch is less. It doesn't squidge out, so you've not got as much grip. And I think that's what the problem was with Quattararo. His tyre temperature is in traffic. His temperature, that you know, you've got obviously <laughs> it's blown up, so when it gets a little hotter, it expands, and it just stiffens the whole job up and makes it much harder. You've got less grip, and you can feel that massively. You can feel the way the thing handles. And um, and I think that was his problem. And I think that some of the tyre problems that we've been hearing about lately, I think you go out with a tyre pressure that you think is going to start where you need it to start, and it's going to rise to wherever it's going to rise to, or in some circumstances, fall to wherever it's going to fall to, if it's going to cool a little bit once it's come off the warmers. And I think that is also a critical situation that your techs have got to work out before you get out on track. And I think some people lately haven't quite got it 100% right. And so Michelin have been getting the slap. <laughs> and everyone's been complaining that the tyres are inconsistent. But at the end of the day, you've still got to put the right luft in them to um, to get them to operate in the area, in the parameter that you're trying to get it to work in. And I think that Quattararo has much admitted that, I think, um, when we spoke to him earlier in the uh, weekend. He did. And also, the interesting thing, I think definitely Ducati I've seen doing this, but I think a few others... They'll, they'll practice, you know, during practice, they'll ride together to just check those pressures. And I think the surprise for me was, well, two parts of that. One that you think, well, surely Yamaha should have made some sort of test in practice or been aware that this would happen, given that Quattro had the same thing happen the year before at Patronus and it was a disaster. But on that occasion, it was the front tyre. What was really interesting, it was the rear tyre last weekend that did it. That's the first time I've heard of a rear tyre in traffic actually doing all of those things that Keith just explained with the ballooning. And so it just shows how reliant he is on that rear tyre now. And that even, you know, the, the, the disruption, the, the, the heat rising, well, not only the fronts now, but also the rears. Um, and then coming on to the wet weather performance of the Yamaha, I think all of them we saw struggle on Friday, didn't we? They were all the Yamahas were, were in deep trouble, Quattro especially. But it seems like it's a bit of a characteristic of the bike. Certainly Rossi said that for him, it, it's a continuation of his dry problems. He doesn't have enough grip at the rear. He can't get the acceleration. And it's the same in the wet. And then I think Jorge Lorenzo was on uh, talking to Simon Crayfar today and talking about the opposite example, the Ducati, which he said just as you know, for the last few years anyway, been one of the best in the wet because it has so much mechanical grip. It just plants those tyres down with the geometry of the frame and everything. It really just pushes the tyres to the ground and gives the riders so much stability and confidence. It's interesting that um, 
you've you've sort of brought me up into another situation there where Valentino and various Yamaha riders have been complaining about rear grip for 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 some time, and that Quattararo is the man that seems to have found the the secret whatever it is to make that work and it, it might just be as simple as tire pressure who knows that works works for him he gets it at a temperature and at a, a squidge value for want of a better of a technical phrase um than anybody else because he's the only one that's making the mr work as well as he's making it work and maybe it's just when he gets it wrong it goes spectacularly wrong but uh, there you go something else for us to look into next time it certainly is. And with obviously uh, Michelin extending their contract as well in the tyre situation, they're not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, tyres were certainly talk of the town, but I just do want to touch on third place, man. I think we have to because what a ride flying through the field. And Air Bastianini, spectacular move on Jack Miller as well. Had the pace to challenge for the win. If his starting position had been a little bit higher, the gap just seemed like it was a little bit too much to overcome uh, once he got into third. But fantastic for, for the Italian. Bastianini is a great little rider. I like Enea Bastianini, the way he goes about his business and the like. Again, it's got that old situation. You've got the old bike, the 2019 Ducati, that, you know, just a year or so ago, two years ago, everyone, no one wanted to go near the Avintia or anything like that, did they? They were, you know, like it was like, no, we're not going there. Um, and here we are now, Enea, I mean, everyone's going to be bashing their door down now to, to come and play. But the old bike worked well, and sometimes you find that, a setup that works really, really well on a, on a track. This is not a great track. It's a great vent. It's a great place to go, but it's not a great track. Misano, it's a bit narrow. It was meant to go the other way round. We covered all this, you know, last time when we talked about Misano. I mean, I think it's a fantastic place to be. Start with it's in Italy. Can't get a better country for racing anything anyway. So that's and, or eating, or drinking. There you go. That's got all three three bases covered, really, for me. Racing, eating, and drinking. But Misano going the other way round. It's horrible. You know those. Cavoni, turn 11, 12, 13, down to 14. They're, they're horrible corners. You're decreasing speed all the way through. It's all on the front. You risk so much. Whereas accelerating through them and getting to Cavone flat out, coming the other way, so it's a left-hander. Whoa, lovely, lovely. As long as you don't fall off, of course, because everything's a bit too close if you do, and that's the reason why it's around that way now that it is. But it's not a great racetrack, and I think that it can it can be it can catch you out in so many places there were a lot of crashes this last week i mean a lot of crashes i'm i've not got the falls list so i can't remember how many it is they do a dawner put out a list or the fim put out a list with all the falls throughout the year and it's a an upgrading thing and there are people that have um, won a badge of honor by having the most falls of the year and we'll no doubt look at that by the end of the year and bring it to you here on crash but Every week there's a printout of who's done what, and every weekend there's a printout of who's fallen and where and what the injuries were or whether they rejoined or whatever it was. It's quite comprehensive, as it needs to be, obviously. I think Cal Crutchlow has led the uh, the Falls Championship some some years running. Um, he was always quite good at chucking it in the scenery and um, and getting back on it again. You could never ever you could never ever say Cal didn't try hard, could you? You only had to look at the Falls list to see that he was definitely trying. Um, but back to Mizano, tricky track, a lot of ripples. You know, if, you've, if you're not confident with the way the tyres are working and the way things are, as Enea Bastianini really, really was, he looked like the most confident man at the end. You know, Bagnaia's tyres were shot. Cotteraro was really pushing the limits, which impressed the hell out of me since he leads the championship. You know, that's the way to win championships is to keep your head in it. You know, keep, your, keep yourself going at flat-out pace. And he really did. He was up, up for that win. And if he hadn't had that very slight bobble, um, he was going to be on top of Agnaya at the end of that. 
I don't think he'd have been out of pass him. He needed another line, lap or two to line himself up. But bloody good racing again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Bastianini, he actually said if he'd have qualified better, he might even have had a chance of winning. You know, I mean, he started from 12th, didn't he? So he had a, a lot of riders to work through. I mean, not to take anything away from what he achieved, but if you were going to pick one track, as Keith's just been saying about the track, that he might have done something special on, you know, He's got a history of doing really, you know, impressive things at Mazzano. You know, his sort of home race. He won his first Moto3 race there. Last year, he got double podium, won the second, of I think, or one of the Moto2 races as well. So he goes well here anyway. And I think the combination of, of that, and he said he, he just sort of learned about how to, how to get more from the bike and sort of relaxed on the bike a bit more. He's been looking at the data of, of Jack Miller and, and Francesco Bagnaia and learning from that as well. And, and yeah, you know, he was his, his speed was astonishing. Mark Marquez said you know, when, he, when he passed him, Mark tried to follow him and he was just so impressed with how he was riding. Mark said that, you know, he, he understood, as in Enea, understood how to ride the Ducati, meaning where the strengths are, you know, the corner exit and, 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 and the braking, which is where the Ducati is so strong, as we know. And, and he was really just making the most of it. As Keith says, that bike took a podium with, with Jan Zarco last year and we were impressed enough then. It's now a year older, you know, and, and, it's, and it's back on the podium. So fantastic result by him. Um, you know, we know that he's seen as a, a star of the future by Ducati and there will be, well, they're already looking after him very closely, but there's certainly, he plays a major role in their future. It, it was a bit strange because Jorge Martin was, of course, the first choice for this year that they signed. So that maybe made people think, oh, well, that's who they're concentrating on and he's got the the latest factory bike. But, you know, Bastianini, even though he is on this Avintia bike and team, they know how good he is. And, and credit also today from, from Valentino Rossi. Um, I say that because Bastianini is not one of the VR46 Academy guys. One of the few Italians, if you like, at the top that hasn't come through this, you know, academy training ground that Rossi's got. And Rossi was full of praise for him. You know, he said, the future is looking bright for Italy after I'm gone, you know, with, <laughs> with Pecco, with Morbidelli. He sees both of them as title fighters, you know, Pecco this year, but certainly Morbidelli next year as well. You know, he's got his brother. Um, he said, you know, Bezecchi's going to probably be there. It's not official yet. You know, he was careful not to ruin his team's announcement, but he'll probably be in MotoGP next year. And now Bastianini, he said, you know, I think his, his, well, his quote was, he rode like the devil. And I think that pretty much sums up Bastianini's day, doesn't it? Also gives you a lot of um, a lot of hope for what's going on in the UK now as well with, with the fact that Valentino has spent a lot of money, a lot of effort bringing the, the young Italians on. And this week, of course, was the big announcement that came from Michael Laverty, who's been working on this for the last three weeks. You know, Michael Laverty, teammate of mine in broadcasting for some time and a, a good mate anyway. Um, has got himself a, a team, basically. He's now purchased the Patronus Moto3 team that brings two of the youngsters through that are already in Spain, already making a name for themselves. So they now have a dedicated team for British riders in Moto3, which is remarkable on several fronts. Um, the biggest one, of course, being money. I wouldn't have thought that Michael and this is with the greatest of respect, and I don't know because I've not asked him because it's the kind of question you don't ask your mates because you don't want to put them in a position where they're going to say something that's complete bull just to keep you, like any journalist, they want to try and keep you to one side. They don't want to let the secrets out. So I haven't asked Michael on purpose, purely and simply so that he doesn't have to either tell me he can't tell me or give me a load of bull. So I'll make it up, <laughs> Michael. You know how we do in broadcasting. I, I, I figure that Dorna are desperate to get that ladder going in the UK. 
They've had a bit of a go with the British Talent Cup. That kind of fell away a little bit when BT didn't stump up the money that, that Dorna were expecting to match their money in that series. So Dorna ended up wearing that one. Um, it obviously snuck back into a British Championship where it's still the British Talent Cup, but not quite. Michael set up his academy with Vision Track as sponsors. They're, they're sponsors also of Paul Bird Motorsport. So Birdie, Birdie has the most money for his Ducati PBM team in British Superbikes. Vision Track also knew Michael for some time. Michael's got them to sponsor him in the academy that he's doing in the UK anyway, which has got a bit of a soft launch, but it's all going on in the background. But then all of a sudden, Patronus kit and caboodle is up for sale, is, is available. Well, that's a lot of money. We're talking about a lot of cash here. Two and two together, I've probably come to five, but I'll bet you a small amount of cash or beers that Dorna have weighed in here to make sure it happens. Vision Track, much, I'm sure, to the to the real annoyance of Birdie. I can't wait to find this out later on in the year when I get to a BSP round because Michael basically is going to be getting the lion's share of any Vision Track money now because he's going to need it to run a Moto3 team. Birdie and Vision Track, have, have, you know, they've been a little bit at loggerheads of late anyway, so it'll be interesting to see how much Vision Track are putting across. But I can't imagine Vision Track stumping up the full cost of this team. I think it will be a collaboration with Dorna, maybe with Erta as well, to make sure it happens. And it's happened in three weeks. Now, that takes a lot to under to underwrite the kind of money to get that to happen. Since the British Grand Prix, good job I, did, good job I couldn't get into the paddock because I'd have been trying to find this out all the way through it. Um, it's one of those situations where there's a load of money involved. I mean, to buy out the kit, I think substantial as well, Peter, and, and you're probably going to be able to underline this in some way, is that we've not heard about Joanne Stiggerfeldt. You know, like the fact is, is that Razlan Razali has, has this week launched the name of the new team for next year, the MotoGP team that's taken over from the Sepang International Circuit or the Sepang Racing Team as is now. That Razlan Razali, ex-CEO of Sepang the Circuit, and then obviously CEO of the, the racing team and separate from the circuit, suddenly those two entities parted rather than being as one. And Razlan Razali looks like he now has annexed the MotoGP entry, and I haven't, and I'm surprised that I haven't heard anything about Stiggy and Co. Um, they've obviously been cast. Well, it would look obvious to me that they've been cast adrift a little bit, or they haven't been able to negotiate their way into this yet. Um, Michael Laverty has said he's on record as saying he doesn't want to be there as a day-to-day man. He wants to be the team owner. He doesn't want to be. You know, he's still working for, for BT Sport. Um, he's still doing this, that, and the other, although his contract comes up at the end of this year at BT Sport. So be interesting to see if that all comes together. You know, maybe he'll take a different view at the end of the year when he realises how much work he's got to put into this team next year. You know, being a broadcaster and, and not giving it 100%, maybe he will think at the end of the year that he needs to spend more of his time dedicate all of his time to this new team so a lot still in the in up in the air i would suggest with that team at the moment they've got to get their personnel nailed down still as well will stiggy be part of that now if stiggy's part of that then i can see where michael can relax a little bit because he's got a really really good team manager but we'll wait and see can't wait i mean yeah first of all you know congratulations michael as you say i mean great guy what a nice guy i remember working with him when he was riding for pbm in motor gp and always Always had time for, you know, anyone, whether it's media fans, whatever. 
So it's uh, it's great to see him putting back, shall we say, and helping the, these young guys come through. Keith raises a lot of good points there, a lot of questions that 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 everybody's asking, and there's not not too many answers at the moment. What we do know is, as, as Keith said, when the original announcement came out that Patronus were not going to continue, it, the, the statement said that the the they didn't name it, but the replacement team, if you like, would include Raslan Rosali and Johan Stigerfeld. Then we get this announcement, as Keith says, the official announcement of the new team, RNF Racing. I don't know what it stands for. I don't think anyone does yet. But And there's no mention of Stigerfeld. So, and, and all of the inquiries, that, you know, if you ask the team any questions about this new team, as in if you ask the SRT guys, they, they say, you know, ask Raslan. This seems to be very much, as Keith says, this is, seems to be Raslan's project. And it's not quite clear yet who is going to be involved and, or any of the details. We, we haven't officially had the Yamaha contract, for example, announced. Now, you know, Dovizioso has been signed for next year to Yamaha directly. So that's where his contract is. And he's going to need a team for that bike. So obviously we put two and two together and it'll be with this team. But officially Yamaha and, and, and RNF Racing haven't announced, you know, as, as we believe they will do, an agreement. So that still needs to happen yet. We, we don't know the team members. At the moment, just to recap, as Keith's been saying, you've got Johan Sigerfeld, who's kind of team director, I think, isn't, isn't it, Keith? And he, so he sort of oversees the three teams that they've got. And then you've got Wilco Zielenberg, who's kind of his team manager, but very much the MotoGP team manager. Now, there were rumors that, of course, Suzuki needed a team manager. And so when, when people realized that Patronus was downsizing, everyone sort of, ah, you know, maybe they're going to look for Wilco. Because Johan Sigerfeld in this statement from Patronus was announced as, as being part of this new project with Raslan. Now we're not sure if that is the case. Maybe if you're Raslan and you've only got a MotoGP team, well, you know, Wilco is running the MotoGP team for him now. So maybe, you know, maybe Wilco is now going to continue there. In which case, as you say, quite rightly, what happens to, to, to Stiggy? You know, vastly experienced guy, runs lots of teams. Is he a target for Suzuki? Is he a target for Laverty? Is he a target for both? You know, there's so many unanswered questions now, and it it all seems to have sort of it's all it's all shifting, isn't it? We saw we, we thought Darren Vinder was was sort of heading for the second seat, and we've heard nothing about that either. And so the longer it goes on without an announcement, quite naturally, you start to think, well, you know, maybe there's a few more names still in the running for it. Jake Dixon hasn't signed for next year, so you know. He's probably on the list. It seems that there is still a list, meaning it's not just one, two riders. There might even be three or four. So, I mean, how many riders have been linked to this 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 uh, this team for next year? It's been quite incredible, hasn't it? But yeah, interesting times. I mean, the good news is that Razan has got this entry. It's been transferred. He's got a five-year deal. So he's got MotoGP grid places, which are not easy to come by. You can't just wander in and, and start a MotoGP team. So he's got that in place. You know, we assume that the deal with Yamaha is, is going to be the next step and is just a formality, should we say. But yeah, the title sponsor, we don't know yet. The, the team members, the second rider, we're, we're waiting to hear. The Dixon thing, I think, is quite interesting. I think the Dixon thing is very interesting. Com- comparisons with um, Dovi this weekend, uh, Johnny Ray, Jonathan Ray, when he came into Honda that time. I know different era, different tyres, different times, really. So it's difficult to make that comparison. But Jonathan Ray did a great job for me, for my money. When Jonathan Ray had those two, two one-off rides, he did brilliantly. I mean, he was right up there. Um, on this occasion, Dovi, who is an established MotoGP rider. Okay, a lot of time off, but he's done a little bit of testing here and there. You know, Dixon 
first time I'd ever been on a MotoGP bike straight in the deep end, did in my for my money at least as well as Dobby's done this week. Um, okay, I, I suppose that's slightly unfair in as much as it, it was a bit wet and a bit iffy on the Friday, so Dobby didn't get a great swing at it straight away. But really difficult decisions for that team. And it's even worse, the Patronus team, that won't be the Patronus team, the RNF team, as will be next year, because they they started off with such a bang. They came in with Quattararo who, and, and Morbidelli, two fantastic riders, you know, six months it took them to form workshops, personnel, you know, race-winning team in the first year. It was just incredible how they, they got to where they got to so quickly. And to repeat that, or to even ma- maintain that, I should say, repeat it is probably impossible. Maintain it is going to be, well, impossible. It's going to be a difficult job. You know, Valentino Rossi not performing. Where did he finish this weekend? 17th or something in his penultimate ever home race, which was Terrible. I mean, there was more yellow flags at uh, Mizano this week than I've ever seen, I think, even back in the day. So the fact was everyone was expecting something magical from Valentina. There's no magic in this job at the moment. You're either good enough or you're not good enough. And at the minute, that's what we're talking about at Patronus. Who is it going to be that's going in there? Who is going to give them what they've already had? I don't think there is anyone. Not just yet. You know, it's going to be a really, really difficult year next year for them. Well, Davizioso, uh, will he be able to... Will Divizioso be able to do it? Big question, Mark. Good luck answering that one. Uh, <laughs> well, that you have uh, those were the two big talking points, of course, coming through the weekend. That the Sepang Racing Team will be rebranded uh, as RNF uh, Racing, and that's expected to go through till 2026. And then just coming back as well to uh, Michael Laverty's new team as well, the uh, Vision Track Honda Racing Team. It's going to field Scott Ogden and Josh Waitley as well. So that's uh, two young Brits coming through there. Uh, so it'd be great to uh, monitor the, their progress now. Um, we've talked obviously a lot about uh, Dovi there in the last uh, few moments. So uh, let's uh, let's focus on them, shall we? And Morbidelli as well. Um, coming back after injury, returning after a while off as well. Where did Morbidelli finish? Well, it was uh, 18th for Morbidelli and then for Davizioso, 21st. But Keith, how did you uh, rate their performances uh, on their return to, to the top flight? Um, exactly as I would have expected. Uh, Morbidelli is stiff as a board. Um, he's got control problems. It's a difficult racetrack. It's got ripples on it. It's got flat corners. You've got, you know, the, the, the opportunities to make a mistake around somewhere like Mizano are huge. Um, so I think Morbidelli is easy way. I think the way that I would be looking at it if I was Franco this year is you work your way back to your peak again through, through what's left. We've got four rounds left. Um, he's aiming towards that. And I think it's exactly the same thing with Dovi. I think Dovi's got four rounds to play around effectively to get things in, in place for the coming year, 2022. Uh, I think that's what they're both working towards. Um, no criticism of Dovi at all. I know I really just gave him one by, you know, aligning him with Dixon. But, you know, this is a competitive sport. You know, nobody leaves anything on the table here. So be interesting to hear what he had to say after his first race. I, I, I saw nothing of him and I heard nothing afterwards about him particularly. Um, we just know his race position and his race times. You know, he was a second and a half off the off the pace compared to Bang Naya, who is bang on the pace. So it's a tricky one to make comparisons, and I'm, I'm reluctant to do that in the circumstances because he's, it's his first weekend back, effectively. And it wasn't a full-on Friday that he had either to, to get to it. Davizioso is a clever man. He's massively experienced. He's not going to make the mistake of throwing it at the fence at the first weekend. He's going to be collecting data 
both in his head and physically. Um, so I'm looking forward to where that goes from there. Uh, Morbid Alley, like I say, stiff as a board still, um, first time back. The injury was a lot more serious than I gave it credit for at the beginning, I think. Um, and I, I think a lot of people thought that he would be back quicker than he was and that it wasn't as serious an injury as it is. Um, so give him a chance, do a bit of recuperation on the bike. They're not exactly easy things to ride, you know, Harry. They're quite tricky. <laughs> really? I reckon I could just hop on. It'd be fine. I'd be up there. Top 10, surely. Um, Do you know what? The daft thing about it is, daft thing about it is, you could ride one. They're the easiest things in the world to ride in comparison to how they would have been in the old days when you've got a, a four-inch wheel with a with 2,500 RPM um, power band and, and then all of a sudden it tries to throw you to the moon. Um, these things, if you ride them gently, they're easy. You're right, yeah. Well, people we can get, get track people, at some right, look, point. You've got to let me have a go. Well, look at Lewis. I know Lewis Hamilton. I'm comparing you with Lewis Hamilton, which probably is a bit unfair <laughs> on him. <laughs> but Lewis Hamilton can ride a motorbike really, really well. I mean, he can ride a motorbike really, really well. I Bikes mean, yeah. nowadays, are, they've got much wider power bands on them. They're, they're quite sophisticated things to ride. They don't want to tear your head off as soon as you get on them. But, of course, if you want that last 5%, then it's going to tear your head off. Mm. Wow, compared to Lewis Hamilton, I never thought I'd see the day. And if you haven't seen that bloody, that bloody documentary with Rossi as well, every every other day on Sky Sports F1, filling the gaps, then uh, I don't know. The switch. The, <laughs> the switch. switch. That's it. It's great. I've seen it about 20 times now, but it's great. Um, well, while we're, doing, while we're doing film promos, Harry, and, oh, yeah. and I know you've got no, go something on. else you want to get us towards, I watched the film The Missile from the East. It was made in 2020, and it's about Ernst Denk Degner, um, Degna, we got Degna Curve. If you remember, there is one called like that out at um, East German Racetrack. And the, he was the East German guy from MZ who defected. Now, Matt Oxley's got a book called Stealing Speed. It's about stealing speed because Ernst Degna defected to the West, went to Suzuki, and gave MZ secrets to Suzuki in a nutshell. That's what it's about. But there's a film out called The Missile from the East. And it was a, I think it was 10 to 3 in the morning, the other morning. I noticed it. It's brilliant. What? So anybody out there that's not seen it yet, who's read Matt's book, I mean, better if you read Matt's book and understand the the detail behind the defection and all the other bits and pieces as well. Stealing Speed is Matt's book. But this was, a, and it's got Murray Walker in it, uh, Tommy Robb, uh, oh, Frank Paris's missus, uh, Ernst Degner's son. I mean, we've got the right people speaking about it. And I, I, I was captivated. It was one of them things where, to start with, None of us, even me, because I ain't even this old, um, the, the, you can't appreciate how difficult things were back in the days of when they instigated the Berlin Wall, when they first put the wires across and split Berlin through the middle, and Degner and his family were on one side of it. And we actually had him racing in a world championship, Ernst Degner, and leading the world championship. And he very nearly won the race that he was going to defect from. But he had a failure on the bike. Anyway, look, I'm not going to ruin it for you, everybody. But it was <laughs> yeah, called the missile from the yeah. east. It was made in 2020, so it's an up-to-date film, oh. and and it's and it is really good. So there you go. That's my recommendation for your um for checking it out. It was on Sky Documentaries. Okay. I think. Maybe we should make that a weekly thing. Keith's uh, weekly movie, <laughs> motorsport movie uh, recommendation. That that could. Be I've got loads of them, and most yeah. people have never heard of half the things I watch. Oh, they get the missile from the east. All right, <laughs> write that one down, folks. Um, now I want to go back though to some of the on-track action, if I may be uh, so bold. I want to talk about Mark Marquez uh, in fourth um, at a track that we knew that was going to be hard on him. Lots of right-hand corners and turns. 
always going to be a strain, but he was a, he was really pleased with fourth, wasn't he? And it was a good ride for him, but that seat, especially as he was always going to be limited at this kind of track. Tough little shit. <laughs> That's about as much as I've got to say about it. I'm frank, uh, uh, in fact, bloody, I think uh, Valentino Rossi called him something much stronger, but it, along those lines, uh, I mean... When you saw the pain he was going through through the early parts of the weekend and he had a couple of crashes, I mean, the, the one down on the right-hand side that he would have saved with that shoulder in, in, in good, better days when he was in a better condition. But he was suffering with pain and it showed, which is really, really unusual for Marquez to show pain. Um, very, very impressive with that position. Very impressive. And if it hadn't been for the likes of Bastianini, who was riding out of his socks, you know, it'd have been even better. It's a, a situation where, you know, no no one gives any quarter in this. You know, oh, so you're not you're in pain, are you, Mark? Well, bad luck. Oof, move out of the way. <laughs> Through comes Bastianini. Um, no, it was a very very good ride. Uh, Texas. Everyone says you know Texas. He's been an absolute king of bloody Austin, but that is a hard track. You know he's he's going to have to work really hard there. He's going to be in he's going to be in trouble in Texas as well. This is for me, Marquez is not going to be himself this year. He's just working towards twenty twenty two, and he's gradually going to get better. He's he's a different Marquez. He's come back as a different Marquez. He is he's not the same guy he was before he broke his arm. He's clearly in pain, isn't he? It was interesting. Dovizioso on Thursday had a sort of a special press conference as they seem to organise when the when the big stars come back. And uh, he was asked about Marquez. And he said, you know, in his opinion, he's in more pain than he's kind of letting on. And, um, of course, it was back-to-back race weekends. And we, we saw how much effort he put in at Aragon in those closing laps to try and beat Banyaya. And then just five days later, he's back on the bike at Mizano. He's been saying, you know, the track is very compressed. It's not, it's not a classic flowing track by any means. So he's muscling the bike from right to left all the time. And, yeah, it looked like hard work, didn't it? And um, he's, yeah, it's a right-hand track. As he, said, he, he said he was happier with the result than he was at Aragon, finishing second, because it's a right-hand track. He was happy to be the, the top Honda. But he said, look, you know, I want to be winning races. I want to be fighting for the title next year. And they got a lot of work to do. So they're still losing a lot on the, the exit of the corners, he said. And it's kind of like a, it snowballs from there because they're losing out on the exit. They then have to break really late at the, at the next corner to try and make the time back. And then they're pushing things too hard. And, and I mean, he's fallen, is it 20 times this year already? I think he tops the fallers list and he didn't even take part in the first two rounds. So, you know. And I mean, given that he's in this pain to be falling so much, I mean, it's the last thing you want to do, isn't it? Because you're going to end up knocking that shoulder again, aren't you? Eventually, just the, just the, the odds of probability. If Mark Marquez had fallen off every time he should have fallen off, he'd have topped the falls list for the last three or four years. Because <laughs> he saved half of the ones that most people would have slung at the road. So uh, I think the fact that he's falling down now is probably how most of us would feel in the circumstances, you know. Yeah, yeah okay, I fell off it again. But Marquez usually saves half of them. That's the... That's the bit that's sort of um, the smoke and mirrors regarding Marquez and his wonderful saves. It's, yeah, and, that, and that's the whole thing about the shoulder, isn't it? That he can't save them now, oh, can he? Not, hmm. not, not, not in the right-handers. I think until we see Mark do those saves, that's when we know he's back to the old Mark, isn't it? When we see him picking it up on, on the right-hand side, we're not seeing it at all, are we, this year? And, and as he says, I think it's going to be next year before we see it happen. Big test for them coming up. You know, Mizano, obviously, big test for everyone, but I think especially Honda. 
a lot of work to do for 2022. You'd imagine there's going to be some new engines because they've thrown so many chassis at the bike and, and you know, they haven't made a consistent step. They've had, they've had things that will work at one track. They think, great, they take it to another track, a different character track, and it doesn't work. So I think, you know, it, it's more and more clear it's going to be a complete bike overhaul that they need. And I think they're going to be, well, Stefan Bradl was on track this weekend, wasn't he? Just, to, I think, almost to work for the test, like a pre-test almost, wasn't it? And that shows how important it is. I think I heard there's a lot of extra engineers were at the track for Honda as well this weekend. So two big days coming up for them. Bradl's re-signed for them as well as a test rider. Today that was announced. So Bradl has been doing a really good job. I mean, he was there or thereabouts during the whole weekend, wasn't he? Finished ahead of Alex Marquez as well. And the second uh, <laughs> highest Honda was Takanakigami in 10th. So Marquez really driving out his socks uh, this weekend. And and I know we have talked about this, you know, on and off throughout the whole year. But, you know, you can't not. It's a huge talking point, Mark Marquez's injury. And actually, uh, Baber Mughal, um, I hope I pronounced that right, has asked Keith, in your racing experience, have you ever heard of a rider's problems lingering on for as long as Mark's have? And is it getting better just by racing? Because although Mark is getting race fit, his shoulder doesn't seem to be getting any better since Portimao, really. Most riders of top line riders have got injuries that are causing them a problem. You just don't see or hear about them. You know, it's a situation where, you know, most of us have had lingering injury that create a different way of riding the motorcycle in some way, shape or form. It pre presents itself in a different way, a different racetrack, you know, back injuries. Mine, mine was always back injury, shoulder injury as well. Um, and I think that most top line riders will have had that, but Mark Marquez's injury is a very serious injury. You know, it's, it, he already had problems with his shoulders anyway. He'd had to have them, you know, tightened up. I can't remember what the technical term is, where all the ligaments had to be so that it didn't drop out. You, his arm would drop out of his socket. His shoulder would drop out of its socket just to pat him on the back or or loosely, you know, I used to be able to do it, actually. I used to be able to drop my arm out of the socket. And because the ligaments and everything around it are are holding it in, and he's had all that lot tightened up. He's had some major surgery in an area. Your shoulder is the most complex piece of mechanical equipment you've got in your body it's absolutely it goes through all that movement everywhere you want to go your shoulder you imagine it just sometimes you should think about it what your what your body goes through what you can do with certain parts of your body and your shoulder is remarkable and it's got all that strength it can support all that everything it has to do multiply that by god knows how much when it comes to what marquez is expecting his shoulders to do most of the time picking up motorbikes at 100 mile an hour off your knee and your shoulder you know, going through the kind of crashes he's gone through, now through the kind of surgeries that he has gone through in recent years as well. I don't know. You know, it's it's going to be one of those ones where, yes, of course, I know riders that have gone through lingering injuries, but, but Mark's injury is career-ending in most circumstances. And at this point, it, except his, it would seem. Um, but the ultimate test, which I hope is not coming, um, could be just around the corner. You never really, really can be sure what type of accident or how you're going to get caught up in a motorbike or somebody else's motorbike or whatever it might be. And that, at the end of the day, you know, he's he's broken. You know, his arm has been broken badly. His ligaments, his shoulders have, have not been in good order for some time. So the wrong type of accident could finish his career next week in the, well, COTA, Circuit of the Americas, when that's coming up in a few weeks' time. So, you know, fingers crossed. 
he'll come back in 2022. He's building his strength up. I think his mechanical strength is there. I think that that seems to be okay. But, you know, he's been nursing that injury for some time and soft tissue and so on, muscle, it takes time to build it back up to the level that he has. I don't know, Pete, whether he's got the, the, the full movement that he had before or whether it's just the strength. I would suspect that he's not got quite the full movement that he would have had before. If I, you know, most of us that have had shoulder injuries can't move our shoulder, that the, the, the offending shoulder, anything like the other one, for instance, this one, I'm, I can go anywhere you like on it, but, but this one I can get to about here and then it, it won't rotate any higher. And I've not had a serious shoulder injury. So I can't imagine what it must be like for the likes of Marquez going through these, you know, okay, it was his arm that broke seriously. That was his major problem. But his shoulder has taken the brunt of it as well. So I think it's, it's not just about the bone that was broken. I'm sure that's mechanically fixed. I'm sure that that has, has got the strength it needs to have. But it's all the soft tissue stuff that's that's making it, you know, all the movement and all the, the exercise that he's now got to do. I don't know. Be interesting. Don't go slamming no patio doors, Mark. It's not good for you. <laughs> he did say, didn't he, just before this weekend, he sort of admitted that he, he, he is in pain. And that's something really rare. I think he was, mm. Davizioso once said about Marquez, he said, look, there's some riders that, you know, if they get hurt, they're carrying an injury, they play it up a bit, you know. And, 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 and you know, Mark is the opposite. Mark, he he hides how much pain he's in. And we've seen that previously, haven't we, where he's dislocated his shoulder and then he's come back and, and he doesn't complain. But you can see him now, the fact that you see him, you know, reaching for the shoulder even. I mean, that's just, it, it looks like a subtle thing, but when you think that Mark would never show weakness before, would he? Any kind of weakness. And it, the fact that he is bothering him so much, you know, for such a long time, it must be get, must be playing on his mind. You know, he must be thinking, I mean, races by definition, I'm sure you're one of them, Keith, are pretty short patient, you know, they have a short attention and patient span, shall we say. They want things to work quick, don't they, by nature. And, and you know, this is an injury that's going on and on and on. The, uh, Rossi was asked earlier in the weekend, certainly in, in my career from the side about 2000, the biggest shoulder injury I can remember, it, Rossi had a shoulder injury that lingered on and on. But as Rossi said, that was six months, you know, and it seemed like an age, you know, and wow, he's carried this hot, this injury for basically a season. But you look at Mark's injury, and this is on another scale, uh, you know. So I have a, I, I have no gauge of of an injury that's similar to this, to to any idea of what the recovery time is going to be. And as 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 the question says, that it's almost like the recovery is plateaued, isn't it? And we're not seeing him, you're not seeing him improving as such. He he almost seems to be in more pain now than he was before. Now, is that because he's pushing the shoulder more, you know, and working it more? But either way, it's I think I think Mark. Mark certainly would have expected to be in a better position by now. I think that's that's fair to say. I wonder whether it's the evolution of Mark Marquez that he's prepared to show the pain now. I think it's it's everybody knows now. Everybody is there's no there's no deception available anymore. So you know no no point. Might as well just you know if I'm in pain and I show it a bit, I'm not that bothered about it anymore. Perhaps. And, so, and he does evolve, doesn't he, Mark? He is one of these guys that sort of he. he he gets the maximum out of everything himself, the bike, whatever he does, he's always aiming for the maximum. Maybe, maybe he's just decided that that's not worth focusing on anymore. Just get on with the job. And if it looks like I'm in pain, well, I am <laughs> maybe. 
Well, he was happy with the uh, fourth, uh, it looked like, post-race. Uh, now, I'm going to move on to Moto too, but just before we do that, I want to touch on Maverick Vinales and uh, the Aprilias. Uh, Vinales coming home in 13th in the end. Uh, second race on the Aprilia, uh, having just done a lot of testing, of course, at Misano, which he did uh, before he signed, or just as he signed. Um, so you'd think he's got some good experience here, but what did you think of uh, Vinales' second run out in race trim? Just got to look at his face. He looks happy. He looks younger. Um, you know, baby. Now he's got a lot of things out of the way in the last few weeks. That's for sure. <laughs> it's uh, him and uh, Michael Laverty could uh, compare notes, really, couldn't they, about different things? I mean, Michael Laverty's just had a child. I should have mentioned that Michael Laverty's just had a child yes. as well with uh, Jody Lee. So Jazz Davis's sister, who he's married to, um, they've just had a baby as well. So not only has he been putting a team together, not only has he been working for a broadcast, and not only, only is he running the um, Vision Track Academy, um, he's also a father for the first time as well. And likewise, getting back to the main man that we're talking about, Bloody Maverick. Um, yeah, I mean, he's got a lot he's had to deal with in the last couple of weeks. I mean, the Yamaha thing, I think, had, had peaked. I think he'd got to the point where it was the end. You know, he, he needed that divorce. You know, I'm sure there are people out there that can uh, relate to that. Um, he just needed to be somewhere else. And the fact he looks happy, for me, is a, is a, is a very important thing. The question for me was always going to be, were Aprilia going to be able to nurture the best of Maverick Vinales? Were they going to be able to provide him with what he needs to get on? Right now, it looks really good. looks like they're having their love affair at the moment. He's divorced from Yamaha. He's found himself a love affair, and he's getting on with it, and he looks happy with it. So I wish him well. What did he, he cut off? What was he? 27 seconds, wasn't he? Behind Aragon. I think it was 21 seconds. So he, he definitely made a clear step. He got a lot closer to Aleish. I think, I think six seconds behind, wasn't he, on, on Sunday. So he'd been 18 the week before. So clear step forward. But um, I think this test will be really important for him uh, coming up again because he said they haven't really had time to, to do much with the bike. And as he gets used to it, he, could, of course, understands what he needs changed, if that makes sense. And he's always been keeping the bike as it was until now, but he said he's still sort of, there's, there's some areas where he's not too comfortable. He, he, he says there's a bit of a lack of stability, especially in the early laps. He needs to do better in qualifying. I mean, he had a great first day, didn't he? Because of course he, he'd done the private test. And so he had that advantage of, of, of the track knowledge and, you know, led the way and helped by the rain as well. So perf- perfect start there, but as sort of, I think he knew it was going to happen as, as a late. And others said, you know, the testing time makes a big difference here. And, so it wasn't, it's not, a, you know, if people look at the results and say, how did he go from first on Friday to, you know, 13th on Sunday? That was pretty much expected. That's, you know, the others catch up pretty quickly. Um, but exactly, as, as Keith was saying, he seems a lot happier. He said he feels there's a lot more potential, you know, with this bike to come. He, he likes the engine power. He likes the, the grip from the tires and things like that. The things that, a lot of the things that he was, let's say, complaining about on the Yamaha. So, he needs to get used to the braking still. I think it, that's one area where he needs to, to improve. Um, I, I asked him, what's he going to focus on for this test? Because, of course, you know, is he going to work for next year or, or this year? And he, he said basically his plan is to sort of split it 50-50 because he says, you know, he wants to get results this season as well. He doesn't just want to use it as, you know, riding around and, and getting comfortable. He wants to, to also, you know, bring the bike to whatever level he can bring it to. But at the same time, the 22 bikes are being built now. So there'll be some important decisions to make at this test coming up. It's the, it's the last test during the season. The next one will be after the season ends at the end of November. So 
it'll be uh, yeah it'll be a big test for him just to get track time as well outside of a grand prix weekend and um you know can he continue this momentum can he keep making these steps forward he's at the first points now he's closer to Aleish. what will he be doing in kota We'll have to uh, watch and see as ever. Well, at the end of the MotoGP section, it's still Fabio Quartararo with a 48-point lead now, 234 points uh, with Peko Bagnaia, 186. Joan Mir down to third, 167, ahead of Zarco, 141, a point ahead of Jack Miller, who has 140. Let's move on to Moto2. It was once again Ralph Fernandez who held off teammate Remy Gardner for back-to-back wins and a team 1-2 for the IO pair. Fernandez really showing that the pains he's still experiencing from his injury are not holding him back with a broken bone in his hand, giving him no bother at all, apparently. It was, though, Sam Lowe's who started on pole, but after a mistake costing the lead, he was still able to keep it on the road and brought it home in fourth place. And Cadet overhauled him for the final spot on the podium. Jake Dixon's return to Moto2 as well. After deputising in MotoGP, he came home in 19th position. It's still Remy Gardner with a 34-point lead now in the standings. Keith, uh, I mean, with a broken bone in your hand and still to win but, uh, two races on the trot, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, he got himself sorted out fairly early on, didn't he? I think that um, Remy was closing him down massively towards the end. And then Remy had that, again, Covone sorts of men from the boys. Got it nice and sideways through there. I'll tell you what, 100, 145, 150 mile an hour, massively sideways. And, um, you know, I think he was aiming to try and make the pass if he could have done to the end of that lap. But Sam Lowe's, good start from Sam. Good start, literally, from the line as well. He's got his, um, he's got his launches sorted now, Sam. So got himself into the lead. But as the fuel level seemed to go down, he seemed to struggle just a little bit with that transition period that you're going through when the tyre grip is starting to go away from you and, and your fuel levels change. Um, balance of the bike, you know, it took him two or three laps to get back into it a little bit. Um, and fourth place was as, as, as best he could do with that, it would seem. But but Remy Gardner, Rail Fernandez, Fernandez, yeah, ignoring that hand injury um, completely. Didn't even look like it was giving him any trouble. Dead smooth. Not an easy track either, I would have said, with a hand injury like that. It would have been, uh, you would have thought it would have been smarting fairly well. But Remy, again, okay, he's lost five points, um, but he looks dead cool. I mean, I've got to say, Remy had a lot of work to do after that first couple of laps and uh, worked his way through nice and neatly. And you've got to really make sure you don't end up in. The trouble is with this time of the year, you know, if someone's not in the hunt for the title, they're prepared to push. A little bit harder than the guys that are that are in the hunt for the title, and you know Remy's got that horrible balancing act to play. If you don't get a great start, if you're not among the people that are similarly encumbered by the fact they're going for a, a championship, um, somebody's likely to ram it up the inside of you without any care whatsoever, because they're not going to worry about that particular situation where he's got to be doubly careful because throwing it away and losing the twenty points he ended up on. Um, would basically close his championship lead right down with four more rounds to go. It ain't done and dusted yet, but if he holds his head like I'm sure he looks like, well, he looks to me like he can easily keep it together. But, I mean, now he's had how many wins? Has he had four wins and and, and Rails had six, I think, in, in my mind. I seem to remember. Something like that. Um, but it's certainly Fernandez is on a roll at the moment. And interesting, of course, of these four rounds that are left, two of them are repeats, if you like, aren't they? They're, it's Portugal again and Mizano again, both tracks where uh, Fernandez has won this year. So 
you know, Fernandez is doing all he can. He's keeping the pressure on Remy by winning races. Remy at the moment is matching all of that pressure. And I think the next couple of rounds are going to be sort of, they're going to be, they're going to say which way this title fight is going to go. You know, is it going to go down to the wire? Or, you know, is Remy just going to hold firm and maybe Fernandez is going to realize, well, you know, even if I'm winning every week because of this points lead, if, if Remy's going to be there, it's not going to be enough. On the other hand, one mistake from Remy and it all changes. I mean, a 34 point lead, but in an ideal world, no rider wants to go to the final round with the title to be decided, do they, Keith? Because anything can happen, let alone the weather. It's, you know, at the end of November in Valencia. But so I did. So really, if you look at it that way, he's only got an eight point lead with three rounds to go. If you if you look at it that way of trying to wrap it up one race early. So, you know, what does Remy do? Does he does he push for the wins or does he just keep going with the podiums? It's going to be interesting to see who blinks first, I think, in the next couple of rounds. I love statistics. You know, there's 100 points left on the table and he's got a 34 point lead. That seems to me, you know, pretty substantial with four rounds left. I'd rather be in his position than in Fernandez's position. Well, this is my say too, and anything can happen, can't it? It is a 34-point lead. Just, <laughs> just one more thing to add on that, the bit of breaking news tonight, actually, that I, both of them will be on MotoGP bikes on Wednesday. So that was... That's a fact, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that sort of just came out, didn't it, on Sunday? And so that'll be interesting that they get a, an early an early debut, where they a head start on the other rookies, I guess. It's a good point to make because particularly when they're both going for a championship, you know, you make a mistake on a MotoGP bike uh, on testing in Misano, I mean, and, and cause yourself a bit of injury while you're at a test. You know, okay, they might get a head start on what's going on in 2022, but they haven't finished 2021 yet. <laughs> so Fernandez, Fernandez has a hand injury already, doesn't he? He doesn't want to aggravate that, but yeah. Well, we'll certainly yeah, have good to point, wait and though. see uh, how they get on, don't we? 34 point is the lead for Remy Gardner with 271 ahead of Ralph Fernandez, 237. Marco Pizzecchi, 190 in third. Then Sam Lowe's 140. And Aaron Kennett has 119 points. Right, Moto 3 now. Um, it was another rider with a back to back victory this weekend as Dennis Fodger followed up his win from last weekend with another one in Misano for the Moto 3 rider after Fanati fell away from the lead. Foggia did have to fight for it because Pulse it at Romano Fonati did look relatively at ease uh, out in front in the opening stages of the race with a, a nearly a three second lead I think it was until uh, he slid off from the track on lap 14 uh, with that Foggia now sneaks into second place in the championship still behind leader Acosta uh, who picked up points in seventh uh, Antonelli came home second uh, with uh, Migno rounding out the podium uh, however Moto3 wasn't without its controversy as usual this week with many riders having uh, big crashes on Saturday all being declared bits, uh, bringing up a huge debate once again around uh, concussion checks with the, the biggest of the crashes actually caused by uh, Yuki Kuni riding uh, slowly on the racing line, which caused uh, Sura to crash. And that did result in Kuni being disqualified, not allowed to start the race. Um, so, I mean, Moto3 once again providing all the action on track and off it. And it really does bring up this discussion across the classes, Keith, doesn't it? of um, what do we do ab about this concussion issue? We've had lots of questions coming in as well. Uh, it needs This issue needs looking at all the sports uh, learn more, you know, know more about it than we do in terms of how they actually um, judge this. Right. Yuki Kuni, first thing, he should have got disqualified. We need to see more of that to start with. As soon as you start disqualifying riders and it's costing teams to get riders to tracks and they're not getting into the races... 
teams will soon bring the boot out regarding that and we'll sort out all this bloody dawdling around on racing line business. Uh, it's, we, we need to see more of it from that point of point of view. I mean, it caused the kid, you know, some fair injury as well, which is, you know, Sura has taken a fair clattering. So good for Yuki Kuni. Sorry, mate, but you shouldn't be dawdling around on a racing line. So that's that out of the way. Concussion. One of my favourite rants, Harry, as you're about to find out. Best you know, it's, it's It's just not right. I mean, uh, the, the, we are in a professional global sport. Motorsport is dangerous, says it on the back of the ticket, used to be the old cliched phrase, didn't it? And the fact is, it is. And something like a head injury, which really the world has only just caught up on in the last, we'll say, decade, shall we, for, for giving it a bit of reason. It's taken almost the last decade for sports like football, rugby, boxing, rah, 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 all these ones that are contact sports, um, to realise that a head injury is something that's cumulative. You know, one bang on the head, you might get away with. Secondary bang on the head, you might not get away with. And the levels as to which that concussion can come are not really legislative for, particularly in our in MotoGP and the, and the support classes. The fact is, is that you can, you don't have to be knocked out to have a concussion. You can get a mild concussion with any kind of contact. After this afternoon's racing, I went through the rule book and looked at the protocols that that both Erta, Stewards, Dorner, the FIM all work to. It's a massively difficult area to nail down in one, but a, a particular phrase that I wrote down on purpose, this is, this is actually a consensus that's that's actually legislated for within the FIM MotoGP rulebook. Uh, it's a statement on concussion in sport at the fifth international conference held in Berlin in October 2016. This is a, an actual referenced conference in our rulebook. But the, the, the paragraph that caught my eye, SRC, which is a sport-related concussion, is considered to be among the most complex injuries in sports medicine to diagnose, assess, and manage. The majority of SRCs occur without loss of consciousness or frank neurological signs. At present, there is no perfect diagnostic test or marker that clinicians can rely on for an immediate diagnosis of SRC in the sporting environment. So in other words, it's virtually impossible to diagnose, even if you're a clinician, even if you're an expert, it's virtually impossible to diagnose accurately the extent of your head injury. How frightening is that paragraph? And that paragraph is one that you're led to through the rule book. I mean, I've, I've, like I say, I've printed all this lot. I've, spent, I've actually done some bloody work for this lot this afternoon for the, the crash.net, MotoGP, you know, medical fitness to race. Um. In the event of a suspected concussion, the rider should be assessed and managed in accordance with the guidelines for the assessment and management of conclusion of concussion as contained within the consensus statement on concussion in sport, which is the one I've just read a paragraph out from. Bearing in mind, there's a bloody book on this. Then you've got the SCAT 5. Everyone will be going, what about the SCAT 5? What about the SCAT 5? Well, I've got it here. And it, all it is is a tick box thing that you, you go through, and I'm sure that our clinician at Trackside will go through the tick box. Can they touch the end of your nose? Can you lift one leg? You know, it's all there. You can do all of that stuff. Anyway, having been absolutely massively negative towards the way that we handle our concussion, um, which I think we handle it very badly, there are other sports that we should take some kind of lead from. You know, 
there are units of measurement that you can take. You can have in your helmet, you can have a deceleration monitor in there. If it reaches to a certain point, that's it. You're done. BSB, British Superbikes, I spoke with Stuart Higgs, race director for MSVR, earlier on today because I, I needed to just get up to speed on if they're still handling it in the same way. Because, Stuart, there's, there's nothing quite like a dictator in sport. If you've got a dictator in sport, you can make the rules work. You know, if you think it's right, then plow on ahead. And I love Stuart for the way that he makes rules in, in BSB. I think that they are very strong rules and for the right reasons. And particularly in head injury, if you've had a concussion or if you've got a suspected concussion, you are out of that sport for eight days. And eight days for a reason, because it takes you past the following weekend as well. So if you've got back-to-back weekends, you're not racing in the next weekend either. Because concussion can, and again, I've read all this in these three hours of prep I've been doing, you know, concussion could show symptoms in the next minute or in the next hour or in the next day. You can't be sure that concussion is going to be something that shows up in forms that we are familiar with or, or, or have been led to believe these are the forms of concussion. It can happen. And then it's cumulative, which is another thing that worries me as well, is the fact is, I mean, I've been knocked out uh, in both in road racing and motocross. Motocross because I'm stupid. Road racing just because I ended up in a big accident. But but the, 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 the point being, I've been knocked out. And I've been concerned about my memory. Is it my age? Is it not my age? Is it something that I've got cumulative because of of what I've had in my sporting life prior? And there are a lot of people that are asking the same questions in football, in rugby, people that have had these massive collisions um, throughout their sporting life. Should youngsters head a ball? You know, there's there's a consensus at the moment. The youngsters that are in football, my girls all do local ladies league football. You know, heading a ball is still normal, but they're actually talking about restricting at what age you can start practicing headers in school because of that that effect it has on your brain. I think my conclusion is is that we're not doing enough regarding concussion. I don't believe that we should leave it up to a rider or even a clinician at trackside to make that diagnosis. If there is a suspicion that someone has been unconscious or not quite uh, with us straight after a race, and Dennis Onshu, who is the man that's really got us into this rant, who was allowed to race today despite the fact clearly he was stricken at the time, and it was a massive crash, you know, that – those kind of whiplash crashes where you, you bang the, your head on the floor from behind and the like, they're the worst crashes. I go back to where, where this all started for me, where the rant started. It was 2018 when Danilo Petrucci, coming out of pit lane at Aragon, was wiped by, I think it was by Paul Espargo, I think, back in the day. And when we spoke to Danilo later in the day, he couldn't even remember what day of the week it was. And somehow he was still allowed to ride in the afternoon sessions. And I think that's wrong and irresponsible. And I think that as a top-line sport, a global top-line sport, we should be more proactive. There should be something like, like the track limits, bloody monitor. We should have something like that in a helmet, as part of your helmet. They're tiny. And if you have gone past that impact, that that G-force, that whatever the, the level that, that we set it as a sport at, once you've hit that point, once your head has decelerated at that rate, at that measured rate, you're out of there. That's it. You know, it's no good shining a light in your eyes, no good making somebody touch your nose. I could touch my nose with a barge pole. You can see it from here. <laughs> <laughs> but the point being is that these kind of tests, yeah, they might be 
quick ready reckoners, but I think we're beyond that. I think head injuries and the diagnoses and, and the possibilities of how later life you can suffer from something like this, we need to be more proactive and act now. We're already behind the game, in my view. You know, was it NASCAR, Harry? I mean, I, I think it's NASCAR, again, going four wheels, that have got uh, a, a, a G-force monitor or something like that. Because I think they that when they crash into a wall on these ovals at 200 mile an hour, it's something like 300 G for a millisecond that they 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 pull. I think they pull yeah. this massive G-force. And I think what they do is they've, they've got a monitor that, that um, shows up. And if they've had that, hello, is that your dog out? Is that your dog? It's not my dog. <laughs> not mine. Pete, not is mine. it your dog? Go on, let him in. <laughs> he's loving your rant, Keith. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in my rant, he's saying, "Shut up." He's agreeing. He's agreeing with you. But it, it's interesting. Has that, that dog got an edge injury? <laughs> <laughs> he will have if he carries on. <laughs> it's 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 interesting, though, isn't it? That I mean, just coming on the most recent four wheel thing that, that I saw. I think it was Carlos Sainz Jr. in, in the Ferrari had a, a really big incident in. Um, uh, Monza qualifying and, and usually in at Formula One the hands device does its trick of of protecting the, the the driver's head from sort of being moved around too far but on the replays that didn't do its job properly and he came you know hit the front of his head nearly hit the front of the the halo which is which is in front of the steering wheel which is should never happen but immediately the FIM Formula One are straight on it and investigating it and doing their due diligence I don't know what then happens from behind the scenes but also I think it's interesting to see how you know, in MotoGP you can't really also take a rider's word for it are they because they are they're never going oh, no. to admit they're never going to admit are they no, no. I mean, that's never going to be the case. I think in Formula One as well, that, you know, obviously the car, you know, you can measure the G-forces through the car. It's a different yeah, thing. Yeah. You're strapped in it, so you know what the car stopped at. With a bike, you don't. You're always a part of the, you know, you're away from the bike. So measuring G-force accurately. You know, we've got the systems in, in you know, the Alpine Stars air suit, for instance. That works on algorithms. As soon as it, you know, it's very, very clever. So it knows when you're about to hit the floor. It knows when you're going at a certain speed and, and you're in an awkward position and pop, up comes the airbag. You know, if we've got stuff that works in, in technically in that manner, it is not a million miles away from one extra little lightweight piece of equipment to measure the G-force that your head has gone through. And personally, I am amazed that we don't have that equipment yet. Why that is not mandatory, I have no clue, because it's only going to benefit everybody. It's you know, it's, a, it's almost, an, <laughs> pardon me, but a no-brainer. You know, it's, it's, it's one of them ones where... What's to stop it? You know, we're, we're a rich sport. It's not expensive for these kind of monitoring devices. It takes away all the variables, all the possibilities of, of getting it wrong. And for the future, for that rider's future as well. You know, we, we don't need a bunch of, you know, riders that have got head injuries late into life. You know, dementia and stuff like that. We're all, we're all linking things up with. Head injuries previously with dementia, it might not be anything. It can be vascular dementia. It can be a disease dementia. It can be all sorts of things. But your head is a fairly complex piece of equipment, more complex than anything else that we're likely to, to work on or, or, or realize. So I don't understand why we don't have a very simple system. Once you have reached a certain point, measured without, you know, just like it is with riding on the green paint, that seems to be really important at the moment. How about having something that's equally as important, to me anyway, to save our youngsters from from possibilities of later life problems, if not immediate problems. You know, it, it, again, I, I refer to the cars. I mean, look at poor old Shumi. I mean, at the end of the day, 
you know, he's out skiing with his family, clunks his head on a rock, and 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 that's a head injury too far for him. It is your 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 brain is too too gentle a piece of an organ to to really mess around with. I suppose the thing that stuns me as well is my rant is not one that's been in isolation just for you guys and the poor sods that are listening to it at home at the moment. It's one that I've had in the paddock with some fairly high up people that run our sport. And it's been fairly dismissed, I must say, which surprises me and disappoints me, not just because I said it and I think I'm right, but it is it is surprising that, that people high in our sport that are very, very clever people that work out problems and solve problems massively well, and yet this one, which affects all of us to an extent, isn't being dealt with, to my knowledge. Or did I just forget that? <laughs> I, I found it I found it quite disturbing reading something earlier the thing that Jack Miller came out with saying you know if, if the reason you, we don't Dorna and most GP aren't providing perhaps as much as they could do to monitor this is because there would simply if we had all that statistics and there would be there would be no motor GP because there you know the the there would be a huge amount there was you know any kind of incident you'd lose riders left right and center and there simply wouldn't wouldn't be a, a consistent championship and I found that a bit disturbing well i can i understand where he's coming from of course it depends on the level at which these things are set once you go into yeah. automation and stuff like that and you take the take the responsibility away from an individual you know there is no doubt about it some people probably probably jack's one of them you could bang him on the head um at the same amount you could bang me on the head i'd get knocked out and he'd say want another beer mate yeah. you know it, it, it kind of you know some people re- appear to be okay and I think that is the point. Appearing to be okay doesn't mean you are. And therein lies the the, the, the the crux of the matter, isn't it? I mean, some people can take a whack on the head, you know, go a bit do lally for a second or two, and then they're fine. But others are knocked out stone cold with the same kind of impact. But whatever it is, we are, you know, smoking. There are some people that can smoke 40 fags a day and live till 90. And there are others that, that yep. cop something horrible early on with, with less cigarettes. I mean... Where is the limit? Where you you have to take a responsible view on it, and you said it earlier on. A rider will ride. You know, if he was one armed, he'd still ride. Um, in fact, we, Pasini, I suppose we could include him on it. Um, you know, he's moved all his controls over to the other side, and Pasini is still a, a or was you know a race a virtual race winner. So riders will will adapt to anything, whatever the circumstances are. But I think as a control as a as a as a body, we need to be uh, a little bit more proactive with this. You know, maybe you set the limits at, I don't know what the limits are. I don't know how other sports are, are doing it, but it's happening in other sports and they're still continuing. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, the, you know, contact sports like rugby, I mean, they're crashing into each other like raging bulls. I mean, it's, it's, there are other sports that, that measure things in a different way. I, I mean, I don't know. Are there, what, what, are there any other sports that are measuring it through helmets and stuff like that? Do NASCAR, is, is that a compulsory thing, I wonder? I mean, I don't know. Actually, I, need, I think we need to throw it. I think, I think we need to throw it out there, don't we? Yeah. We need to throw it out to people. What do you think at home? What do you think is right in the circumstances? I mean, we've got green paint monitors. Is a helmet monitor for for a possible head injury a good idea or not? Is Jack right? Is Jack right in as much as saying that if we had these monitors, we'd hardly have any MotoGP racing? I don't think he is right. To be honest, there are not too many people that bang their heads that hard during the course of a year 
I think what I'm looking at is the extremes of Dennis Onshu, who we've just had, that did clearly take a massive head injury. Not Well, I'm going to call it a head injury, even though it appears that he didn't take a head injury. But anybody who gets to the, the medical centre and then can't remember what's happened but still rides the, the next day can't be right, yeah. can it? Again, you know, what do you think at home? What do you think at home? Yeah, let us know in uh, in the comments section and on Twitter. It'd be great to get your your thoughts in on that because it is a huge debate uh, and that will rage on, I think. And I think we just need more communication and clearer answers to, to these kind of things. Um, I'm very wary of the time here and I feel like it was important to, to give that um, a good a good rant, uh, Keith. But let's just see off the, uh, the Moto3 race action, actually, if we can just sort of round that off because Pedro Costa is still in the lead 42 points lead now 210 Dennis Foggia and Sergio Garcia tied on 168 points Foggia is second I think on, on count back um, but Pete so I mean uh, certainly the fight for, for, for second is certainly uh, getting getting intense there but uh, Costa with a solid points finish uh, on the board as well keeping it on the road this time yeah, and keeping it on the road, you've got to spare a thought for Romano Fanati, haven't you? Falling out like that, I mean, you could see how devastated he was. He looked like he had, you know, a home win. He'd done the hard work, and he almost by breaking away. But yeah, you know, these things seem to happen. We saw it with with uh, Banyaya last year. He fell from the lead as well. You know, I don't know whether it's very close close to the coast. You've got the dust, the sand, the weather changes. Does it? Yeah. It, from trackside, Pete, funny enough, I was talking to somebody earlier on today and they said that the rain seems to bring in lots of like dust and dirt. When the, it, Not only does it wash the rubber out of the track, which is something that we're all familiar with, but it seems to bring this film. All the higher cars parked in the car park are like covered in a film of like dust and sand when it's been raining. So I think that you, you've just hit, maybe just hit the nail on the head there. When, when we get a bit of rain, it brings in a bit more than, uh, than what we might have expected at track. A bit like Qatar, I guess, maybe. They, they have that sort of strange dust sometimes, don't they, there as well. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah, Fanati, unfortunately, that's that's his championship hopes over, really, isn't it? But as you say, Foggia, the man on form and, and, and up to second now. And Acosta, you know, as we said last week, after that sort of that rookie race, if you like, in Aragon, that he, he needed to kind of just restore order. Well, you know, he, he, he salvaged some good points on the last lap, but, but a lot of the time he just didn't seem to have the pace, did he? And I think that... You know, Foggia and those other guys, Garcia. Garcia's had a, obviously the bad luck in it falling in Aragon on the last lap when he had the chance to take a really big chunk out of Acosta's lead. The momentum seems to have slipped away from him a bit. It's now gone to Foggia. But it's going to be interesting, as you say, big lead now, 42 points. But, you know, if it carries on like this, because the, the thing is, in Moto3, Moto2, and even MotoGP nowadays, you can't just say, oh, well, if you just finish second to the guy that's chasing you, you'll be fine because it doesn't work that way. As we saw today with Acosta, you know, you're not going to finish second. You'll be lucky to finish on the podium. And that's why points leads can suddenly disappear when the racing is that close. So yeah, interesting to see what will happen in Kota. Well, I think you're right. Kota is going to be a tricky one because from memory, has Acosta actually been there before? He hasn't, has he? No, they wouldn't have have gone. It's a very difficult racetrack. So he's got a lot to learn on a difficult racetrack, you know, next time round. He's not been on the podium in, podium in the last four races. Foggia has been on the podium four races on the trot. So the momentum is definitely in the way of the of the young Italian. Um, so at the end of the day, it's, it's it's looking like Acosta's really got to pick the pace up here a little bit. You talk about um, Quattararo, you know, 
34 points being the the situation there between him and Bang Nye. Well, 48 is a, is, a, is a little bit more in hand, but I would say that um, in the circumstances, there's more likely to be a mistake in a, in a Moto3 race from a rookie at somewhere like Texas, you know, where he could drop 25 points just like that. And then all of a sudden it's game on. Game on we'll indeed. See. Game on indeed. Um, yeah, just behind uh, Foggia and Garcia is Fanati with 134, as you say. He does look a little bit out of the hunt now. And Masia, 122 behind him. Right, there is time, I think, uh, to chuck some listener questions at you uh, because we've had, we've had a lot come in. So uh, first one from Joe Nichols. MotoGP, 1234 was Ducati, Yamaha, Ducati, Honda. World Superbike, race two, 1234. Ducati, Yamaha, Ducati, Honda. British Superbikes looks like it'll be a Yamaha year as well. Question is, in your opinion, which manufacturer is having the best year and what do the others need to do to catch up? And that's from Joe. <laughs> <coughs> I think if I knew that, I'd be working for one of them. Um, <laughs> I think Ducati are having a great year. I think they've finally got themselves sorted out with a with the team seems to have a dynamic about it that's that's working very well for them. Yamaha... Yeah, okay, in BSB, I mean, they, even when they wipe each other out, they still, still come back with race wins, don't they? The O-Show, O'Halloran and um, and McKenzie, I mean, brilliant stuff from from both of them. They're really putting on a show. Is their bike any better than everybody else's? I'm not so sure about that. I think they're just, the team is working particularly well and the riders are working particularly well in it. World Superbike, you know, Jonathan Ray, even when he's having a bad day, he's still there or thereabouts on a Kawasaki that's been fairly well penalised in... Um, in the way that its revs have been moderated, shall we say. Um, Ducati are having a reasonable time. Yamaha, you know, top rack. You know, the thing thing for me is, and it's difficult from a legislation point of view, particularly in World Superbikes, legislating against a rider's performance is the thing that's difficult. You know, if you're legislating against the bike, how do you do that? Top rack is riding that Yamaha out of, out of its socks. You know, he's making a real job. Resigati Oglu is just doing the business on the Yamaha. Scott Redding looked good this weekend on the Ducati as well. You know, uh, Rinaldi, okay, he, 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 he's had a good ride as well. Track to track, I think World Superbike have got it pretty much right in their regulations. You know, Scott Smart, you know, son of Paul and Maggie Smart, nephew of Barry Sheen, is a very, very clever technical director, very clever man indeed. Um, and he monitors this stuff like, like it's his baby. Um, and he has the control through obviously Dorna and the World Superbike authorities to make those changes. Very difficult job as well. It's a good job it's Scott because he's not he, he doesn't mind taking taking a thump on the nose from people when they get slightly insulting and saying that the you know as soon as soon as the Kawasaki gets beat, then everyone on the Kawasaki side is turning around and saying you took five hundred revs off us, we want them back. And then you got the you know, Ducati when they get beat, you know they're complaining that the Kawasaki's going too fast and straight, whatever it is. But Smarty's got the job of trying to balance that up. Whew, I wouldn't want his job, that is for sure. <laughs> I'm glad he's a better man than me, that is for sure when it comes to that. But uh, I, I think the, the Superbike regs are pretty pretty clever. In answer to the question, what have they got to do to get it's that age-old thing. Every single racetrack you go to has a different set of circumstances that you've got to get around and get your bike working the best. If you go to Moto2, for instance, you know, you've got exactly the same engines, exactly the same tyres, and pretty much exactly the same chassis. You know, Calix 
on 90% of the chassis out there. You've got the Boscoscuro, formerly speed ups, you know, so on and so forth. It's not like the old days where you had the Harris chassis and the Morowaki chassis and all the rest of it. Calex work best across most tracks generally. That's how it is. Um, and yet there are teams riding Calex bikes that can't match some of the team's setups that are riding exactly the same material. You know, you can't legislate against the guys that are going fast in those circumstances, surely. And again, that's, that kind of spreads out even wider when you've got different manufacturers and different chassis as well. It's the most, well, it's probably the worst job in the world trying to balance that lot up, really, isn't it, when you think about it? Mm. Isn't it? Well, hello, the dog barks. I reckon that dog could make more sense of that than me. <laughs> he agrees with you again, Keith. Yeah, um, I, I, I heard what he said. I heard what he yeah. said. <laughs> Thank you, Joe Nichols, for sending in that question. Erin has asked, "Is the GP21 the best bike on the grid?" Ooh, uh, he's heading that way, isn't it? Yeah, Pete. I think, I think I'd say so, yeah. Quattro, I was, of course, the early part of the race, there was a load of Ducatis around him, wasn't it? He said he was just seeing red <laughs> everywhere he looked, you know. There were the two factory bikes, there was Martin on the Pramac bike as well. And, and yeah, I mean, in these upcoming races, if there's going to be all these Ducatis, we heard Jack say before this weekend, look, if I, you know, if the team asked me to help, and I'm, I'm happy to help, I'm a team guy, you know, if, if Peko's in this title fight and, and I can help him in any way, and at the moment, Quattro hasn't got anyone that, that can sort of do that for him on the Yamaha side, has he? So, yeah, I think I think the yeah, I'd say overall that the GP21, yeah, best bike mm. at the moment. Could be interesting to see what goodies are coming out of the box for 2022 for all the manufacturers. But I tell you what, with Ducati stealing a little bit of a mark, they're beginning to get to where they need to be at this moment in time. And eight bikes on the grid next year. The amount of data they are going to be dragging back through all of those bikes. There's going to be some kind of dominance maybe from ducati next year if they played it right in the winter couldn't be really really and that's going to annoy a lot of people yeah. <laughs> we're very excited for 2022 aren't we just as excited uh, to see what the rest of 2021 uh brings us last one from tanya could it be three for three for peko god i hope so smashing chap and bloody good race well he is a smashing chap there's no doubt about that and um everybody said once he won one that's going to be it. Once he's got through that that mental bloody blockage that you have, once you know you can do it, and the and the way he's won both of these races has been absolute sheer quality. He's been under pressure. One from Mark Marquez, another one from Quattararo. When you see your pit board hanging over the board, you got two point seven. I think it was two point seven second lead that he got. Two point five, two point three, one point nine. It's like a nightmare. <laughs> it's like cue the jaws music you know like all of a sudden you're going you're trying to keep it smooth trying to hit all your markers trying to make you know the, the laps are coming down you're trying to manage that gap to perfection you don't want to obviously you don't want to be forced into making an error and it takes a special kind of rider that can manage that also he seems to really really have sorted out that mid corner speed the bit that Ducati have struggled with for so long, being able to make a bike turn, it's looking now like it's turning. You know, the tyres at Michelin have now sort of, you know, that are general. You know, they're, they're working well with the Ducati, or the Ducati's working well with the Michelin. It, it's making a difference. It's looking good from that point of view. It was interesting today. He was he was asked, you know, where, where are you making the difference compared to the other Ducatis? And he, he, he thinks it's all on, as Keith says, the, the breaking, the last part of breaking and the entry into the corner. He said that's where he seems to, 
to have a difference and advantage compared to the other guys. And he explained he'd been looking a lot at Jorge Lorenzo's data and that had kind of given him some ideas. And then he'd done a lot of um, training on the Panigale. Now, you can't use MotoGP spec tyres as such, but it, he said the, the, the tyres that they can use are kind of world endurance tyres, I think. He said the front tyre is actually not too different. And so he, he'd just been learning and, and the, you know, all the VR46 Academy guys are at Mazzano training quite often, aren't they? And he'd been just, just practicing and practicing and practicing this braking and the corner entry because that was where he struggled initially. And he's turned it into one of his strengths. And, you know, the other guys, as he says, the other guys are just not able to do what he's doing at the moment. And, you know, Kota's got a big long straight. And if they have got the Ducati turning better, there's a lot of sort of fairly low speed corners, aren't there, at Kota for, for bikes at least. They're all designed for the Formula One cars. But if that Ducati's turning better, it's going to enjoy the long back straight there. And it's very stable. I, I remember how bumpy coat has been. We haven't been there for a couple of years, but certainly in the past, there's been an issue with bumps. But the Ducati is one of the most stable bikes over the bumps, it seems, at the moment. So it's all looking good for him. And uh, yeah, you know, say Quattararo is making the difference on the Yamaha, but he's alone. And it's going to be interesting to see, can he, can he, can, can he do it all on his own, if you like, as he says, or will he be seeing red for the rest of the year? Yeah. Well, um, speaking of uh, the rest of the year, your crystal ball, Pete, is working absolute wonders <laughs> because you predicted Banyai to win this weekend, if you remember, and uh, neither of us did. Um, so, uh, But with that, in our very own championship, uh, Keith and Pete, you extend your lead um, over me uh, with six points each. And I, sh- I, have, I have a measly three. Uh, but we will get the predictions in uh, for next week's show because uh, we will return with you same time uh, next week for more MotoGP chat. You can keep up to date with all the very latest on Crash.net. We will return to preview all things Circuit of the Americas, which gets going on the 1st of October. Any questions before then, send them in all the usual ways. Leave them in the comment section or tweet Instagram or Facebook. Us. Just search Crash MotoGP. Leave us a review wherever you get your podcast as well. And we'll see you right back here next week. Bye-bye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.